And welcome everyone to the latest episode of Dicing with Design Games podcast. Uh, here we have Colin Gray. Hello. And Joe J. Prince. Hi there. And I'm Grant. Nice to meet you. Okay, uh, this week, uh, well, we often go astray when we when we pick our topics, leaving me to try and edit out me talking just now, so I'll, I'll say a pause after each one. Solo games. <laughs> wow, those are exciting sounding topics, aren't they, guys? Oh, yeah, definitely the way you said it, anyway. Oof. <laughs> Uh, whatever we decided they are uh, in the end. Okay, uh, so first of all, we thought we'd have our usual updates uh, on uh, on what we've been doing. I think this is mostly based around our uh, weeknight games for this list. Uh, okay, yep, yeah, cool. Uh, so, uh, we're around at yours, call. What were we playing? Uh, we were playing, well, I decided, well... It, I suppose this led on from the last compulsion, actually, didn't it? That was, um, well, basically, I it was a game I wanted to play for quite a long time. I'd heard a lot of good things about it, and that's X-Wing. Uh, so I decided to go out and try and buy that uh, just before, the game, before the, uh, you guys came over. I uh, managed to pick it up in Highlander Games on Sunday night at about 8 o'clock. Probably the only <laughs> hobby where you can manage to go out and buy something that you haven't managed to do so far at that time on a Sunday. But uh, they have their board game nights on uh, Sunday evening, so I got lucky. Um, yeah, so we played a nice game of X-Wing, learned the rules really quickly actually, it was really easy, uh, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it, it was, I think we had a kind of, um, we had a bad, well not a bad, but a, a mixed first game, didn't we? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed it, I mean, was that the first game, yeah, it was the first game we played, wasn't it, I was playing the uh, Empire, I had two TIE Fighters and Grant was, Grant was Luke Skywalker, I believe. Mm-hmm. That's a suggested. That's a suggested first um, scenario, actually. I don't know if it suggested Luke Skywalker. Actually, I think we just chose that. But yeah, it was the. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I've read the rule because I bought it on Sunday. Oh, okay. <laughs> I bought it a couple of days ago, uh, and it does suggest you do something like that. Although I don't know if we took the suggested um, loadouts for the. Should we introduce what the game is? First yes, of all. go for it. We don't do that too much, right? This is what we're actually talking about, folks. Okay, so this is uh, Fantasy Flight Games' uh, miniature-based uh, game. Uh, uh, I think loosely, not only based on the uh, Star Wars uh, movies themselves, but based also on the uh, largely from the computer uh, from the PC game uh, X-wing and and the Fallout Tie Fighter. Would that be fair? It's yeah. the Star Wars universe. Yeah. Well, every, everything you get in the basic set is in the movies, isn't it? In the basic view sets. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you're you're taking on uh, small small models. What are they about? They're... A couple of, about a couple inches yeah. long, or wingspan of a couple inches. Not uh, even. Probably not half. even that. Yeah, they're definitely a bigger sort of. Well. They're, played they feel, three, they feel yeah, nice. Played a three by three uh, table as standard, and yeah. generally you want like a star, a, you know, a random splattered uh, stars as as a background, and that's what it looks like. They so feel about... they feel a bit more substantial than your standard miniature war game stuff, don't they? Just because they're, um, I don't know, they're they're a wee bit bigger, but then obviously the scale is smaller because they're meant to be spaceships, so they're supposed to be massive. But yeah, yeah, and they're pre-painted. Yes, which is the bit one of the major one of the major selling points. Anyway, back into the game. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so we played the played this sort of scenario close to the suggested starting scenario. I think. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's essentially a dogfighting game, isn't it? It's a dogfighting game in the Star Wars universe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's based on uh, Wings of War, I think it was the World War Two yeah. um, or World War One, but basically a fighter pilot game. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I suppose that makes, that makes the sense. Core, yeah, the core mechanic is really you're 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 declaring your move in secret, uh, and then revealing it, and everything almost goes simultaneous. Well, basically, every everyone does their moves. Nobody knows what any any other uh, fighter is going to move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you can't change your move based on what the other person does. Basically, you have turns, but you can't do anything about it. <laughs> Yeah, you have to in- anticipate what what the board's going to look like. Or, you know, the ships, the way the ships are going to move in motion. They can't just turn ninety degrees at you know at will. Can they do three pivots or something? It's yeah, you put down your movement and then it all happens like you say at the same time. Um, and it reminds me a lot of the I don't know if anyone's played the Steambirds uh, little flash game, stuff which is a which is like a steampunky dogfighting turn-based strategy game but that, that's the same kind of thing like you put in your actions for your planes and then uh, click the end of the turn and then all everyone moves the enemy planes and your planes move so you're trying to get around behind them and shoot them okay so that's the same thing in next week really you're trying to get around behind your uh, opponents and, and blast them yeah indeed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yeah so um well, we're clearly not going to do a review it's uh no. first impressions from the base set but i've got i've now got a base set so i certainly i certainly see it's just it's got legs isn't it it's like it's it's a game where you can buy an expansion and you can play it straight away you buy a new unit you don't have to clip it out and file it down and base it and paint it yeah. you can literally take it out of the box stick stick on the cards and play it mm-hmm. And that I think is too good to too good to ignore. Yeah. Although Joe, you thought you thought it was quite random. Um, well, I really I, there's part of it I really like, and then part of it that I'm not too keen on. Like I really like the the anticipator bit, the picking your tactics and setting them down first. That's great. That's a great mechanic, and that plays out really well. But then a lot of the times it seemed like kind of regardless of what you'd done, it just came down to getting a lucky dice roll to. Take they, out the opponents. Like, did have, you could, yeah. like, sometimes it was better to charge straight down rather than trying to get round behind and you know actually get on their six and keep shooting them. But if you roll badly, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, I remember. Yeah, I think you're right. There's there is a lot of power in the dice. There's a lot of the randomness to it. But I suppose that's the case with most games, isn't it? Like you can charge with a really good unit and Warhammer or whatever, and you can roll a whole bunch of twos and threes and not do very well. Or do you think it's like, it more unbalanced than that? We'll, we'll turn to our, our resident maths expert with a difference in probability <laughs> on three dice and then on 30 dice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, maybe that's what it is, actually, because with a whole bunch of dice, it's more... Well, it's less likely that you'll get a freak roll, but with two or three dice, it's more likely you'll get just, like, two or three ones in a row. Um, so maybe that's what it is. It's more noticeable uh, when you do get that kind of unlikely roll. I've been listening to the X-Wing, the unofficial X-Wing podcast by... Uh, Ben Curry of Bad Dice fame, uh, and uh, oh, he talk about him later as well because he, he was one of the playtesters for the new Widow book. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Well, he was. Uh, yeah, they, they were talking on on that uh, on that podcast that uh, yeah, there are big swings with the dice, but um, I think the upside is you get you get to play three or four games in 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 the 
time it would take to play a Warhammer game. So you'd actually you you rack up, you swap swap, swap sides if you like, and uh, start again if you like. Also, I think a bigger I think bigger uh, bigger model count uh, might help that a bit as well. Yeah. I wouldn't want it much um, bigger though, because I think it would get really slow. Cause oh yeah. yeah. Pick tactics for every thing. I think, more I don't think I five five vehicles. Yeah, I think the more add-ons would make it more. Um, are more balanced as well because they kind of they affect dice rolls, so you get more add-ons that let you turn eyes into hits and stuff like that. So that might make it more likely or less likely or completely fail, I guess. Okay, so um, that's X-wing. We'll, so we'll be we'll be playing more of that. Uh, certainly, I can see that being something I waste a lot of money on. Uh, <laughs> They're just quite cool, the models, aren't they? You've always wanted to own a like a Millennium Falcon. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, I've been. I, I'm on Monday a, a few days ago. I, I watched Star Wars and I watched this sort of fan edit off of the internet. Right. And it was, it was pretty good. I mean, it was really, <laughs> it was really, really good. And the X-wing bit was superb. All, all in preparation because there's not much fluff and there's no fluff at all in the rule book, which is disappointing. But um, anyway. Maybe I'll leave that for for a later review. Any more thoughts on X Wing, guys? No, all good. Yeah, I think we should talk about it properly sometime once we've had a couple more games. Okay. Yeah, I think it's fun. I'm looking forward to playing some more games. And, uh, might buy a Millennium Falcon at some point. Yeah. Was <laughs> 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 saying. Um, so we also played out more pork. Yeah. Uh, that was your first game, Joe. Yes, the first time that I've played out more pork. And uh, yeah, I've, I've since looked at some uh, reviews and people talking about it online, and it's um, what I find. I think what a lot of people seem to find the first play is it's it's a bit crazy. It's a bit chaotic. There's a lot to kind of take in and, and figure out on your first playthrough. And I was just ignoring mm-hmm. most of the other victory conditions because I didn't really have a clue <laughs> what was going on. <laughs> but I can see that. Uh, but it was it was quite good fun. I like the way it took a bit of getting used to the cards as well. Cause I'm not used to. You can you can only do what's on your card. You don't have like standard actions that you pick each turn. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a bit weird to get used to. But um, that's one of the things I yeah. think's great about it actually, just because it's it's totally simplifies it and speeds it up. I think that's one of the things that makes it nice and fast and fun. Yeah, there. I mean, you, there are. Yeah, I do. It does help to play it a couple of times. Yeah, the first one yeah. is a bit. First game is going to be wacky. But you know, I've played it. What, four times and I got mm. the card that let me look at all but one of the characters that weren't taken and I worked out just from just from the first few turns and that I actually worked out exactly what your your characters were uh, with without too much well I, I think I, I guessed it to within 95% sort of um, certainty uh, and it, well, I wound up being right uh, so yeah I mean it, it, yeah. Yeah, it does take a bit of learning to to get to that stage where you look at people's motivations and guess it. It's fun to guess. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. I think I, I think it is a good game and, and it is one that you need to play a few times and it would get better the more you understand the game and stuff. Um, I wonder about the inclusion of Captain Vimes though. Like, is that just talk from a design point of view? Is that is that a good idea to have that in the game? Because his his Victory condition is basically to make the game go on as long as possible. Mm. As long oh, as possible. Guys, we've done we've done it again. Okay. 
Ankh-Morpork is a worker placement game based on based on <laughs> this 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 world setting by Terry Pratchett, Indeed. Uh, with with multiple uh, secret uh, missions for each character. You can go and you're placing minions as your workers. Yes. Okay. Every time now we ever mention a new game, <laughs> let's explain the way. Explain the rules straight away. <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah, it's um, I th- I don't know, Joe, because when I- I've been Vimes twice now, two out of four or five games that we've played, I think, and it it's not so much that you're trying to make the game go as long as possible; it's you're trying to make the game go as quick as possible. Like, there's quite a few powers that let you roll over cards, like draw four or five cards at a time, and I think it actually almost makes the game go quicker because you're trying to cycle through as much of it as quick uh, as much as it is possible because you don't want anyone else to to win regions or to get power or to you know do anything basically so you're just trying to mess things up and keep it flowing so that you get to the end of the pack but you don't have your own victory condition that would end it before then no no you're right yeah i suppose some people do have the power well everyone else has the power to finish it quicker but it's possible well yeah i suppose it could go either way but i've i've felt I've felt the game accelerating when I'm playing it just because I'm, as soon as I get a couple of the regions that let me cycle through cards, I'm kind of, I'm just trying to fire through them and, well, yeah, I'm not sure. I I don't know if it slows it down too much from my point of view so far anyway. I can see the concern though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's just just something that that occurred to me. It kind of makes sense. It makes sense for the character. Vimes that he just doesn't really want anything to happen that much in Ankh-Morpork. and that was uh, that was the other thing that for a, for a Discworld game, it's it's not that funny, is it? Just no, really, <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's not, it doesn't have that much humour in it. Or just, unless you know the characters and can think, ah, oh, that's funny because that's Rince. He, you know, goes on all the adventures with the luggage and things. Yeah, all the world. <laughs> but from the actual the actual game itself, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. Actually, it, the characters don't even really have any kind of effect on the game. It might as well just be like randomly named things in a different city altogether because it doesn't even like a lot of the cards don't really even reflect the personality of the characters or anything like that. They're just it's just like draw a card or uh, do this or do that. It doesn't yeah like Captain Carrot. I think reduces trouble. That's probably about as close as you get. He's a policeman, so he reduces trouble. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of it is kind. A lot of the action is kind of not nearly described the 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 trouble system which is so good when you move when you move your worker your minion into the into the region what are they called quarters um well, into the region yeah. you a tr- there's trouble and you can't build there um which which helps certain characters and, and hinders other characters what's and the, um, what's the trouble supposed to represent because that's one thing I, I was i know you're not like a storyline with your games and i was having a hard time kind of coming up with a storyline now well it's just just sort of um the, the storyline behind the game is that the uh patriarch what's his name oh, veterinary yeah. veterinary uh, that he's he's left the he's left the city and, and everyone's trying to seize control, uh, and it is sort of the ensuing chaos uh, sort of bubbles up and it will help some people to sort of make order and other people to uh, <laughs> for other people might think that chaos is a ladder. We came up with that, and uh, yeah, um, it's kind of yeah it's kind of not really described, but. Uh, you know, you can't build a building when there's trouble there. There's one character who wants this, this at least one character who wants this uh, chaos to continue. I suppose it's just a black 
disc on on the board. But I can well imagine, you know. I kind of just took it as like uh, rivalry. So somebody's moving into your territory. Uh, like so fighting. a new character comes in and there's fighting going on and there's loads of chaos. Yeah, exactly chaos while while that kind of settles down. And then when somebody moves out, it's like the fighting stopped because you've forced them out of your territory. So the trouble disappears. Mm-hmm. Or someone's retreating. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, that's where oh. I see it. No, fair enough. That kind of makes a bit more sense. Seeing it like that. Should we have explained that to you before we started playing? <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, cause it, and it's just not that intuitive how you reduce trouble. Because you reduce trouble by killing people. Uh, you reduce trouble by getting anyone to leave a region in any way. So yeah, if they either get moved off or they get killed. It's yeah. Cool sign supposed to be an assassination. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought it was a bit weird to get around it. Yeah, killing you kill people to calm down the trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well, re- remove remove the opposition. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I suppose. Well, assume it's a riot. <laughs> if somebody gets killed, oh, that's it, finished. <laughs> I, I I see it being a bl- little bit more backhanded than that. Would be a little more, um, you know, people coming in your coming in your back door and assassinate you in the night or that sort of thing. But yeah, now it'd be good to have a proper chat about that someday as well <laughs> on a future podcast. We always end up talking about these things for 10, 15 minutes in the intro and then uh, saying we're going to do a proper one and then we do. <laughs> well, you don't want to until you've really had a good chance to hammer it out. You don't want to review something when you're basically giving a preview. Yeah. yeah. Um, right, so I think, is that all the non-compulsion games they've played? Hmm. You were talking about Warpack, but I'm um, not sure ah, if you want to cover that just yes. now or not. Yep, Warpack's come along, and I'll explain this, uh, give a brief introduction or reintroduction to this one before we start talking about it. Uh, <laughs> yes, so uh, this is Prince of Darkness Games. Say hello. Yes. Hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> this is Joe's um, in development 28mm, or you know, scalable, we've been playing 28mm. Fancy war game, uh, uh, rival and and defeater of, of <laughs> Warhammer fantasy battles. Did <laughs> it first, but we're using all their models because we have them. But you could use other <laughs> yeah. models. Well, you wouldn't buy new ones for it, though. <laughs> no, I will be soon. Uh, but um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and so we played a game of that. Um, so, do we have any major differences in the? rules since last time. I think we're now just you know, we, we're we're picking our own factions and designing them using the template which are part of which is part of the rules. Uh did we talk about my sea elves? Um I don't think we did, no. Okay. Yeah, I think that is a good yeah, it's a good example of uh what what you can do using the template. Uh because I have a few you know, because I have basically a dark elf army. Um, most ne- nearly all made up of Warhammer models, and I have I've picked up a few uh, Slanesh Demon uh, models as well. I thought it might be an idea to combine uh, those models in, into one faction, and yeah, it's pretty you know relatively easy to do. Uh, so I've, you know, I, I decided to slightly retheme them to being sea elves, uh, so that. You know, I could use a, a wide variety of models, uh, and it's an alliance between the sea elves and the dark things that live under the sea, which are have represented with Slanesh models, which actually fit quite well because they're they're quite um 
quite sort of aquatic with their uh, lobster claws and their tentacles. Uh, yeah, the scaly brutes. They've got it going on, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, yes, of course, the, the seahorse heads on their monsters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, which works really well. So I've kind of made some made. I, mean, I, I wrote a wee bit of fluff about it, you know, just to just to make it all sort of tie in. Um, so you, it wouldn't have to. They wouldn't have to be evil. Well, I made them evil, uh, I suppose, and slightly, you know, and changed the, you know, the the story about them is now coming from a different place, but I'm using the same models, which I think is quite cool. Um, and Joe, you were playing the. Uh, I was using you playing the. Uh, I was using your Chaos Warrior army to represent the uh, Cult of the Prince of Shadows. Is that what what your faction's called at the moment? I think I've just called it the Cult of the Prince of Darkness. Cult of the Prince. Let's, of let's, let's keep let's keep the branding. <laughs> uh, so yes, yeah, I was using them with your models, weren't we? And mm-hmm. Yeah. So I made well one one thing that I put in was I I made sure and spent points on stealth. Because I thought my elves would be nice and sneaky, and uh, half my army came on from the uh, uh, had the skill that they could come on from the side and and, fr- and from your flank uh, in the second turn, uh, which was quite tasty. Yeah, they infiltrated and, and took out my uh, um, demon spitter bee, and that which I was using as heavy artillery, which was like shelling your uh, shelling your crossbow elves at range. But yeah, got. Fascinated by the infiltrators, I kind of went all out. after that first, yeah, he took one round round of shooting at my pretty much my main unit, which was the archers that weren't nearly close enough to shoot you. Um, <laughs> They're just getting shot off, so I, I kind of went all in, put both infiltrating units in, and uh, took out. But then they were all out of sorts and got charged, and I basically then had an army that was split in two, and you picked me off bit by bit. I think it'd be fair to say. I, th- I think so, yeah. And the uh, my army general riding his uh, huge war shrine was quite critical in that. Cause I was deciding whether to hold him back or to throw him in, and then just threw him in, and he got got stuck into the two infiltrating units who'd come on behind. And uh, yeah, with his help, the rest of the units managed to wipe them out. While the uh, the elite heavily armored warriors just kind of trudged across towards the you know the depleted elves, and then. <laughs> They were very powerful, weren't they? Or they very yeah. tough. Yeah, they took a lot of wounds to, to put down. But then I did spend a lot of points uh, when designing the faction. I put a lot of points into their armor. I gave them maximum points for armor. Uh, that the army doesn't really have any much shooting. Yeah, it's mainly armor. And that um, points well spent, I think. I think so. And it was it was good to, to play with two factions that I haven't designed. So I know that someone else has... Um, using the rules and they seem to work in a, at least enough to get a functional game and yep. and it was definitely you know you felt the clash of styles didn't you where the points have been spent differently like you mentioned the heavy armor and the you know, elite um, hard hitting nature of the the cult of the prince of darkness uh, compared to like the elves the elves who had a lot of mobility and ranged firepower and stuff but were a lot didn't have like the same kind of massive damage output and um, armor to just soak up the punishment. So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely two, two. Yeah, like you said, two styles of play from from the one sort of everything starting from the same, you know, from the same rules to create a to create a faction. Um, Colin, you're going to be designing some uh, dwarf faction. Yeah, that's right. 
uh, a slightly different dwarf faction, which would be, uh, well, the idea is barbarian, barbarian dwarfs from the frozen north, or, uh, or it might not be frozen, I'm not sure, but um, they're uh, basically they have a few more options in your standard dwarfs because they're a bit less disciplined and a bit more bestial. So they've got um, some of them have bestial mounts. Uh, they're a little bit less honourable as well, and maybe a little bit more sneaky. So you've got well, not sneaky exactly, a bit more. I don't know what's the word. Well, basically, yeah, they use poison. <laughs> so uh, yeah, they've got um, like slayer type guys the, uh, with. Uh, so jungle dwarfs. Yeah, aye, I suppose so. They're I kind of pictured them as rolling out of the snow, riding on polar bears and stuff like that. But actually, the more I've thought about it, the more it would be kind of the more it could be jungle, um, like sort of savages. Uh, it's a tribal dwarfs, possibly something like that. But yeah, it's quite good fun thinking about it. I kind of, I obviously had a good go of that last time when we were together, and um, putting together some ideas. But I was kind of waiting for the the system to um, solidify a little bit, I suppose. And then I'm going to put a bit of work into doing it properly. I think our next uh, hobby hangout, I was going to try and put that together while you guys were all painting. Yeah, that sounds good. And you've you've instigated a freeze on on development. I'm not yes. Going to change the rules. <laughs> Say three months, six months, or something. Play test the rule set we've got. Yeah, there's still a lot like inside that, like writing up the factions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. No, I'm looking forward to that. Actually, it was good because I was getting quite into the uh, the idea of them the last time round. Just try to take what I love about the dwarfs, um, which is a lot, uh, but try and plug some of the stuff that annoys me a little bit about them, i.e. the, the slowness and the kind of overstolid um, sort of idea that they don't get any kind of coolness. They're all just sort of too honourable and it's all just swords and hammering people and that's it. So, yeah, should be interesting. Um, cool. <laughs> okay, so we'll look forward to uh, further developing uh, Warpack and we'll keep you posted on those developments. We've got a bit of news. Tell me more. I will tell you more. The, uh... <laughs> the kill, you need a sound effect for that. <laughs> <laughs> the Chaos Reborn uh, Kickstarter was successfully funded. Um, I don't know. I, I know you had your doubts, Colin. And I, I played the um, I played the sort of beta, I suppose, alpha version. Really, mm-hmm. that was out. And uh, yeah, it's it, it's chaos, right? The gameplay is really just chaos with with some uh, you know from from the eighties. Uh-huh. Chaos so- with a capital C. Not so they, they haven't over-blinged it with their crazy graphics and stuff. It still plays quite nicely and in the same kind of way. Yeah, but not much. You know, the gameplay hasn't advanced much at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, some different levels, you know, different heights. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be that great, to be honest. It might not even be as good as Lords of Chaos when you when you could go dungeon delving and stuff. Although I think that's part of it. Is I, I find the whole thing... I find the what they're doing quite confusing to follow so well yeah. i've bought it i'll see how it goes uh somebody talked to us nice. uh, who's that tidal games searching they got a couple there they got a, a couple of games in development uh i think there was a, a interesting looking card game which had magic and ma- mixing magic and tech uh another one was a Kaiju game? Kaiju big fighting monster. Yes, Kaiju deck destruction. Uh, where you're um, the big big stompy monsters, which sounds quite uh, which sounds quite fun. 
uh, you having to destroy a city. Uh, so um, thanks for the feedback. They're saying nice things about us, and uh, um, keep in touch about uh, about those games you're developing. But yeah, that's that's news that I've noticed. I've got a quick uh, Kickstarter that I was uh, I've uh, bought into actually, which might be worth mentioning. They've only got actually they've only got four days to go, so it's very unlikely we'll get this out before <laughs> it finishes. But uh, you might be able to buy it afterwards anyway. It's called uh, Insecurity. Uh, and the reason it caught my eye was I think it came up on um, uh, sorry on Twitter, uh, so I went and had a look at it. Uh, and there's a there's a, a paper only version, a diceless edition, which is only two quid. So you can buy in for two pounds, which is officially the cheapest Kickstarter I've ever seen. Um, but the principle of the game is it's really simple. It's just a dice game for three to six people, uh, and it's about uh, security um, people versus hackers. Basically, you're trying to hack into your employer's uh, mainframe to snoop around for some state secrets and stuff like that. Um, and basically, I think I've not looked in complete detail at how the game works in the end, but I, th- I think essentially you just get a couple of cards which have. Um, different uh, dice combinations which mean different things and a story gets told depending on how you roll it uh, and it's nothing more than that it's just actually just keep rolling dice you're telling a story as you go it looks really good fun actually so uh, you can play it with just completely normal dice so i'm going to get my uh, my diceless edition which is basically just a little security player mats and we could probably have a game of it sometime sometime soon yeah sounds interesting it's called, if you want to look it up afterwards, uh, I'm sure they'll be selling it properly. So if you're listening to this after the Kickstarter is finished, just look for insecurity on Kickstarter. Two separate words, in and insecurity, and you'll find it. Um, it says it's called tabletop. Oh, no, that's the category. Sorry, being an idiot. <laughs> I'm sure you can find it. Anyway. Tabletop games. Yeah. <laughs> you will a tabletop to play. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it looks really cool. We'll report back on it after we've had a game. Okay, look forward to it. So, uh, with that, that'll be all our updates. And the final news, well, the other thing is that the new Woodolf books come out for Warhammer, which we save that for a, a later edition. Thanks. Well, let's just give your, let's let's have three highlights from you, Joe. Three highlights. Well, it's been, been waiting a long time for this book. It's, what, how many years? Nine years since the last one or something? And the last one was written for 6th edition Warhammer. <laughs> now towards the end of 8th edition. And the Wood Elves finally get a new book. Yay! Um, but Dryads have been ruined. Boo! <laughs> that's, the, that's the main downside to this the new book, from what I can see. Like, the... The dryads, which are very nice models, some of the nicest plastics that Games Workshop produce, mm-hmm. have now been violated with a Nerf bat to the point that they are utterly useless. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's just like it's, it's kind of rare for units to actually have a stat drop in between editions. They normally keep most things the same, but dryads have lost their strength and their uh, ward save and their initiative. <laughs> And they, more importantly, they can't skirmish anymore. So it means you have to face the hassle of trying to rank up a unit which you built to not rank up. It <laughs> was never designed to rank up. Just buy more models, Joe. <laughs> I've got loads of models, but I can't fit them together. That's it, you have to buy new ones to <laughs> rebuild no. them. Well, I'll buy a new unit that's actually good, though. <laughs> who are now stuck with strength three. 
You've got some lovely models to choose from in that new range, though. Yeah, the new yeah is is a push in the new range kind of release. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think, which uh, nothing wrong with that. Uh, personally, I think the new Spearmen look a bit too high elven, and uh, don't really get the the reindeer girls. I think yeah, on the battlefield they'll be perfectly good, but not sure about the the models wise. I like the wild riders, the new wild riders, they're good. Um, the rangers, I don't mind the models of the rangers, the new wild rangers, but um, I don't really like the concept of the unit. I don't. <laughs> and then the most unrangery rangers you've ever heard of. They're rangers, <laughs> and to show how rangery they are, they rank up into big units and hit things to blend weapons. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah. They don't skirmish, they don't scout, <laughs> they don't even fight with two weapons. Really? <laughs> so, so I suppose they don't wear any armour of any consequence so that's the most rangery thing that they do <laughs> ah. so basically they're rangers that become warriors and they're, but they're kind of shit at being warriors <laughs> uh, the, d the dwarf rangers are better at, at ranging yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so okay. um, I, yeah it's going to be interesting to see how the, the Woodall build change I think the only thing that I, I, I'm a bit worried about is that I think it, it's going to promote armies that are a bit more boring than the old book because they've lost you've lost quite a lot of the maneuverability like you don't have the maneuverability of dryad units anymore and the archers themselves have lost their move and fire um, without penalty so I'm just scared that it'll turn into like playing the tower again in 4th edition where you just like want your, most of your army stood 30 inches away from the enemy and just keep shooting at them <laughs> Yeah. Oh well, time will tell. Um, yeah, I've got my own ideas on what it's going to do, what they're going to do to the meta in terms of armor, but um, I think we'll maybe leave that for another day. See you after the break. Right. Welcome back, folks. Uh, we're uh, now going to be discussing solo games, uh, having talked about multiplayer in episode 22, which is the last episode, yes? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Good stuff, okay. And um, so first of all, we thought we'd um, discuss a little bit about uh, the main competitor to analog single-player games, which of course would be computer games. Competitor? I'm not sure if it's competitor, but it's probably the most common form of solo. Of solo game. games, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm. Now this is a t it's a topic in itself, really. Uh, uh, but you know, how is why would I want to pick up uh, an analog game where uh, or maybe have to do a bit of setup and get bits of paper uh, at least out and some cards and some dice, whereas I could just press a button. And start start twiddling away on my controller to my heart's content. Yes, good question, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think in reality most people will play a video game if they just want to play a game themselves. Because yeah, you exactly, do have that convenience, that ease. But when we're talking about um, role playing games or storytelling games, and I can you still get that kind of storytelling um, experience from? video game, I don't think you can, I think it's a different kind of gaming that you're looking for. I mean, for me personally, I prefer like 
I like a bit of you know action and the video games, all the strategy to be there. But I find it really hard to even pretend to care about a story when I'm playing a video game. <laughs> yeah, you're um, not interacting it matter, with it. Does it? It doesn't really matter. You can just click through all those text boxes because you can't. <laughs> you can't yeah. really change the story. They're just you're on rails on most of them. Occasionally there'll be like a do you turn left or do you turn right kind of question. <laughs> oh, multiple endings. Ah, you could turn left, but in this other game you could turn right. <laughs> yeah, I remember playing Deus Ex uh, <laughs> ages ago, and there are multiple endings in that. But the choices that you make towards those multiple endings, there's one choice, yeah. and it is at the end. You yeah. can save it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's what it comes down to, Joe, isn't it? It's the the kind of whether you... Well, actually, I suppose where I start saying that is I actually quite like the story. I always get into the stories. I always watch the cutscenes um, and I end up sort of treating it almost like a book, like getting really sort of involved in the story and actually quite enjoying it. I'm not sure what the difference is, like why some people would and some people wouldn't. But, uh, but yeah, I suppose that's the kind of thing I was thinking about with solo games is the difference between totally on rail so pick up a, a fight and fantasy and you've got um basically a kind of branching storyline so it is and on it is essentially on rails but there's kind of branching rails at some point so you can go different ways and make your own decisions but you always end up in the same place really whether there's even two or three different alternative endings it's still an alternative ending that tends to happen in the same place with the same context it's just a very slightly different outcome i guess but the other games and maybe where video games don't get it, you can maybe the advantage that paper games have is that you can be a bit more creative, so you can have more input in it. Um, you can actually sort of influence it a lot more. You can put in your own creative elements, like even write the story in a lot of ways. Maybe I don't know if that's maybe the the bigger the biggest advantage of paper games over analog ones. Uh, sorry, digital ones. Yeah. Well, I think, talk about Fighting Fancy, and I've just this weekend bought more of them. So <laughs> slowly, the, slowly my bookshelf is, is starting to look more and more like uh, uh, John Menzies from the 80s, that, the magical uh, Fighting Fantasy game book section <laughs> that I always wanted. Uh, it's, the games are they're actually cheaper now than, than they were originally for most of the books, which is awesome. <laughs> It's always good news for a collector. Um, what was good about those uh, ahead of computer games is, you know, you're filling in a lot of the gaps and what you're hearing and seeing because you're given a description of, you're given a description of what's going around. Nobody's recorded sound effects for what it sounds like when you're swinging your sword and hitting, and hitting folks, uh, or what the dank dungeon, you know, looks like exactly. Um, so, because you're, I think you a lot, you can be more involved because you are filling in those gaps by yourself and using your own imagination, uh, which is which was vital in the '80s because the technology wasn't there for the digital games. Um, though I suppose eventually, you know, the the market really fell out for game books because the because computer games could do a lot of that, and people just went, just kids went towards the. I went towards the digital games. I, I stopped collecting uh, uh, fighting fantasy. Couldn't be bothered with it. So the kind of the the fact that you could use your own imagination actually didn't really didn't make up for the fact that it was a whole lot more hassle to play a fighting fantasy book. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. So it, nowadays, it, it, I've gone back to the other way around. 
and uh, I play one digit, you know, really just play apart from, I suppose, a bit on my phone, but I'm not even much of that. I mean, I played XCOM, as I'm sure all our regular listeners know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, um, yeah, and that, that's it. Uh, you know, the XCOM, as I've said, is really just an analog game, but with, uh, you know, I could literally uh, get, you know, play it, play it uh, as dig- as an analog game on a tabletop without having to even think about it too much. Yeah, it just does all the maths for you, basically. Yeah. And gives and you a representation. A little, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so why would you... I suppose I might go into... Right, so I think analog v. digital will maybe leave out to later. Um, I think we could spend an episode on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so do you want to say anything more about that just now, Joe? About um, not specifically about the digital, but I think the, the key thing in solo games is like where's the adversity coming from? Hmm. You've got to have some uh, some mechanic, I think, that generates that kind of conflict and adversity for your character, and then how gripping that is and how interesting that is is I think is what, what keeps you playing the game or not. Mm-hmm. Well, how would one go about designing a game like that, Joe? <laughs> well, how I went about it was um, I hadn't really thought about designing a, a solo RPG, but then a few years ago um, there was a contest run by um, Emily Kerboss of Black and Green Games on her blog to um, try and get a load of people to design solo playing games. Um, solitaire RPGs I think they were called um, and it happened to coincide at the same time that Ron Edwards was doing one of his Ronnie's competitions on the forge so I used like, I combined the two and did the Swords of the Skull Takers which was using the uh, ingredients from the forge to write a solo player game to try and meet the solitaire challenge um, for me that adversity is the first thing that you need to find some way to generate or some sense of how that's that's going to play into the game because usually in a you know multiplayer game do the players are your adversity you're playing against them it might only be one if it's like a classic gm and uh, gaming group setup but there's going to be at least one player who's responsible for creating adversity for you to strive against um you know, strategize against and hopefully overcome. But in solo play, you're on your own, so you've immediately got the problem of um, what's called what they've christened in uh, indie games design circles uh, the Sega principle. After Paul Sega, who came up with um, the observation that if you're playing a game, usually a, a narrative. Um, story game of some sort and you create you create your own adversity and then you create your own um, solution to it it feels unsatisfying mm-hmm. like you can't satisfactorily narrate your own victory in a way mm. to a problem that, you, yeah. that you've created yeah beating yourself isn't much fun <laughs> yeah because yeah. in part you're a little loser too <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can't invent anything too devious to to um, try and destroy yourself with, because yeah, then you wouldn't know how to get 
Yeah. Well, you can, but then you'd still be able to just say, but I can, I defeat that. But, oh, it doesn't really feel quite right that I'm doing that. That seems a bit too easy. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm, I'm just crushed then. I'm de- well, that doesn't seem right either. <laughs> so you, uh, so you then sort of there's a lack of peril because you got in your head how it's going to go. And it's not a game that's just writing a story, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so there's different different ways around that. And looking at our fighting fantasy did it that was by having yeah all the different coded passages so you didn't you know you didn't read the book uh, linearly and um, the peril kind of came from choosing the right path or not mm-hmm. really as much or as luck ever. as luck as well in uh, the, yeah. the combat system yeah yeah and I mean mechanically from a design point of view I mean it's probably not that great a system really. No, it was what they thought of. Like, like, let's do this. Yeah, Uh, let's do this together. Kind of works. But how many times have you actually played out a a fight in a fighting fantasy book? Every (laughs) time. Never, never (laughs) once. Um, (laughs) I'm the guy. I'm the guy. Every time I play. Really, you always had the dice and pencil. Yep. Did you not even have your fingers in those bookmarks? Some of the early ones, you kind of have to. When it's just when I've just like got left and right, I'm like I saw that. Um, you know, that's not even what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is about the combat system. You do what meaningful choice do you get to make? Uh, rolling those dice. You got to yeah. You basically you have your skill check, which you you you're well your skill at the start of the game is yeah a d6. Can you make a choice about that? No, you can't. Nope. A d6 plus six. I was just going to briefly explain the system because it's not complicated. Uh, you get at the start of your start of the game, you get your skill rating, which you you generate by rolling d6 plus six. And you got stamina by rolling two d6 plus twelve. Um, and you're you'll come up against the opponent. They'll have a skill and stamina score, usually quite low, but you'll they'll be you'll have to face a lot of them in the journey. And you roll two dice, add your add your skill, roll two dice, add their skill. That gives you battle strength. If you win, you do two damage. If you lose, they do two damage to you. Cool. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the the essential flaw in the system. That first dice roll, you roll for your skill. How important is that to the game? That is vital. The difference yeah. between a six and a one is massive. That's yeah. a chasm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it makes, it makes a difference the way you play. You try and play the game uh, because he's like, "Am I going to open that box?" Because I got you know I rolled two for two for my stamina roll, so you can have a almost no stamina. And if you got fairly low skill as well, then you get those stamina points are going to drop. So like, am I going to open that door? No, I'm not. Am I going to open that chest? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just going to try and get as much as far through this map as possible. It's kind of like a, it's like your first few goals, you know, is a suicide mission. You're just <laughs> scouting and building your map of what's going on. If you like building maps, then uh, Book One of Fighting Fantasy is awesome. And it turns out I do. So there you go. <laughs> So I I I actually didn't know much of this. I've I've read loads of the fan well not loads a fair few of the fighting fantasy books, um but never actually played the rules really. I just read the story and like worked out the stuff the path. I didn't realize that that first dice roll the stamina is basically that roll as a measure of the fun you're going to have. <laughs> uh, I've I've found it quite fun running through a dungeon with a really weak character. Really? Thinking, How long am I going to survive this? <laughs> No, knowing I'm, you know, presuming I'm going to die. Later books were maybe a little more 
there was probably more meaningful choice and sort of clues as to what the right way is to go. Um, but still, that's wasn't just left or right, right, you die. Yeah, but still, that initial dice roll just is like the one. That's like the one look test. That then after that, you know, all your look has to fit into that. You know, I mean, if you roll a six five and you've got skill twelve, you'll, you know, you can waltz through most combat encounters. Yeah. Whereas if you if you're all one, you've got skill seven, then yeah, you're gonna probably have you have to be incredibly lucky to even stand a chance of completing the book. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. The other bit I'm taking from this is the fact that you don't get to invest anything in your character. Do you not get to choose anything? Not usually. In a few of them, when they had like tweaks, you could choose like a special skill or something. Yeah, after about after book ten, there were there were quite a few little tweaks to the rules, like you said. Um, even one where you had multiple. Actually, it's the fifth, fourth one, Starship Commander, where you actually had multiple characters. Mm-hmm. I th- I feel like that's probably quite a, that must be a big thing in solo games then do I? like with Swords of the Skull Takers Joe do you get to what do you do at the start to to invest yourself in the world and the character and all that kind of stuff I mean that's kind of that's how you buy into multiplayer games as well isn't it you you have to own something of either at least a character if not actually of the world itself as well that's that's right yeah and that's what I've, I've kind of gone for in Swords of the Skull Takers that you you start off um to make it a role-playing game, you have like the card draws that determine what will happen to your character, but the actual role-play and the actual important meat of play really is recording your journal because you keep a journal in character, yeah, written as your character, which kind of tells the stories of his last days as he struggles against the uh, attack of these mysterious skull takers. Um, and so that's the first thing you do before you, you you draw any cards is you you know decide who am I you know who am I where am I and you know what happened in the days leading up to the skull takers coming and you know, why am I the only one left alive well, or the only one that I know of so it, it sets you up in that kind of to tell a like a survival horror or you hopefully survival horror. Mm post-apocalyptic kind of tale but it can be in any genre you want so people can switch it to have it like in a samurai setting um, or Wild West um, or yeah Grant you did like a kind of Persian Arabian kind of setting yeah sort of Arabian sort of fantasy Arabian setting thought it might be just sort of randomly thought it might be interesting yeah. so what's the adversity um, then Joe you're talking about that Okay, well, the adversity is the skull takers. <laughs> but how do they manifest? Coming, uh, well, they're coming to try and remove your, your head from its body, and you've got to try and survive as long as possible or find out if there's a way to defeat them. Um, and the way it happens is, as you, you write in your journal, you write every you track every night, and as every night passes, you draw a number of cards equal to... Uh, the number of the night. So one for the first night, two for the second night, three for the third, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are from, I should say, these are from a tarot deck using the minor arcana. Um, but every card you draw that's a skull, not a skull, sorry, a sword, indicates the skull takers have found you and they're attacking you. So you're under threat. And you have to defend yourself from that. So as you can see, there's a, there's a one in four chance of it, any card being a sword. 
So as the nights go on and on, you're going to get to the point where you're going to suddenly be attacked by a whole mass of these creatures, which you probably can't hope to to defeat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so is the the idea of the game is that you're doomed, but it's just how you go about, um, it's, or it's, can you win it? You can win it. It's possible to win. It's a, it's a forlorn hope in my experience, but there, <laughs> there, there is there is. <laughs> Yeah. There is a hole. It's possible, but very unlikely. Right. <laughs> I would say, and it's, although it has happened, I've seen people uh, post online about how they've they've done it. Um, what were you saying about following the rules in the the fighting fantasy? So, oh well, yeah. Not, I wasn't talking about Jason Morningstar, who, uh, yeah, misread the rules and won it on day three. So <laughs> 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 no, it was okay because as GM, he allowed it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, in another forum I saw that someone had actually um, completed the game, and I think he said that his, his his wife had played the game as well, but used Animal Crossing cards or something, and she'd managed to get a, a, a cosmic victory or something. So it does happen, but it's it's very rare. And the idea of the game is um, that your best strategy is to not to try and win with your first character, but just to try and try and meet more survivors, and then try and build up a cache of cards and then expect that at some point you're going to die, but then you play another character who gets to start with the old character's cash if they find their journal. Okay. And they yeah they they pick up the they pick up the journal and uh, and write on. Um, so do you, do you kind of build yeah. up this character's I don't know history personality all that kind of stuff as you're going along? Mm-hmm. Why don't why do we go through uh, yeah. some examples of what people have done? So there's outside your control. I mean, you've got quite a sort of European, uh, sort of Central European um, kind of background in your example. Uh, yeah, yeah, Central European kind of a lot uh, ripped off Warhammer, really. <laughs> really, I didn't. I, I, I didn't get that at all. Yeah, it was. In fact, I even think it was set in Marienburg, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> didn't try and hide it, did you? Yeah. No, I didn't try and hide it. So in that one, I'd like, although I didn't didn't make mention to it, I was kind of visualising the, the school takers as, yeah, as like demons, as coronate demons that are, have invaded the city, that come sweeping through a night, just sloshing everything that they can find. Um, and I was using, like, I had a, I think I was using Renaissance tarot deck as well, so... It kind of had that, um, like kind of, sixteenth century kind of feel to it. Um, yeah, yeah. So I've 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 done my uh, city where the where the sort of the sands came up. The the people digging about in the in the ruins and the, of the sands outside the city and they uncovered something horrendous, which sort of I don't know if I even stated at the start like you're supposed to. I just sort of. Well, you're not supposed to. Just that's that's. I should put that out there. You're supposed to just uh, think about it. Like you don't have to. Yeah, so leave a little hook there to, yeah, to what it could have been. Yeah. What, what it could possibly, be, what it couldn't be. You know, it might be part of your story that you find out why these school takers are coming and who they are, or you might never. You might be completely in the dark. So. Mm-hmm. I kind of had a uh, sort of I imagine sort of science versus uh, faith. Uh, Kind of conflict there. Uh, uh, what 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 other sort of settings have we have we seen with people playing this game? Um, 
well, I mentioned mentioned Jason Morristars. He had a really cool setting for his. It's kind of a shame that he didn't didn't play for a bit longer. He was, was just or by the rules. Or by the rules. <laughs> yeah, this was just in. Uh, it was just in Iraq, I think, as part of the. Uh, he, he was playing. He had been the embedded translator to like a, a U.S. unit, and then they just all got wiped out, and he was the only one left. Like. Crawling through the bombed out city and stuff. That might have been where my that I think you're telling me about that, and that that's why I why I picked a desert. Yeah. Oh. What else you seen? Was it, somebody was just went into this mysterious house that was never ending? Oh yeah, that was uh, I think that was Jamie Crook who was doing it online recently and stuff. Yeah, so he had this like weird, surreal, dreamlike kind of setting where yeah his character. Had, Wandered into this this huge apartment building, which yeah didn't seem every floor looked the same, and there was seemed to be no bottom or top, and was just kind of trapped in this nightmare world of trying to find what was going on, trying to find a way out of the dream. So that was that was quite interesting. That was quite quite freaky, and uh, yeah, and Ron Edwards did an interesting one as well, where it was just this normal normal guy like going living his kind of. Um, Blue collar life in America, except he was the only one who could see what was really happening. He could see like, everyone else was still living their lives and going around him, but he could see these skull taker creatures that were, and he could see them like decapitating people and leaving their heads on spikes and stuff with a blade that you know dissected reality and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Is that not similar to They Live with Rowdy yeah. Roddy Piper? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's why he said that was one of his uh, inspirations. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've not seen that in ages. Gotta say that again. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So lots of possibilities. Um, yeah. Has anyone won without cheating? Well, like know well, a couple of people have posted online in a forum. Uh, I can't I'll have to try and dig the link up and put it on the Dyson with Design page. Yeah, put it on the blog. Yeah. Yeah. yeah put it on the blog it was. Uh, yeah, I need to. Check out the post as well because he did a really cool write up of a this of a samurai game as well, which had a really good, really good ending. We won't try not to spoil it and stuff. We'll spoil it, okay. Meeting all these different different characters and trying to get from place to place and kept finding everywhere he was going had already been destroyed and things. Um, and yeah, and he said that he posted again on the thread like a few months later just to say, yeah, I did it. I've got a victory. <laughs> I managed to 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 win. And he said that he was actually not going for a victory that time. He was going to just try and get a good cash to to hand on to his next character, but just managed to get get lucky and find the right uh, major boons and escaped with the emperor and empress to uh, start a new life in a better place. So yes, I I managed to draw the death card on my second my second attempt at a major boon. That was not that, and that that actually, yeah, unlike unlike a lot of uh, fortune tellers will tell you, the de the, the death card here means death, not rebirth. <laughs> nope, not leaving behind your old life. Nope, just death. Actual <laughs> real death. Taken. <laughs> Too fair. If I if I'd play the system a bit better and like say had some followers to take over, then um, that would have uh, yeah, that would have gone better. <laughs> what do you reckon is capturing people about that then, Joe? What's me? Sounds like you're getting quite a lot of good feedback on it. What is it that most people are finding fun about it? 
Um, I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't had tons of feedback, but bits and pieces, and people yeah. seem to enjoy it. I think it's, uh, I think it's good for that buy-in. I think it's it's close to actually get into a, a role-playing game that you're playing on your own mm-hmm. stuff because you actually do start immersing in that character a bit and thinking as that character. That's that's the idea. I think I need to you know, tweak it a bit with a rewrite and stuff, and just to make stress how important it is to to do that journal entry and. Um, but yeah, I think that that's it. People like because it, it gives them they buy into their character and they buy into the world that they've created, and then it's that kind of full-on hope, but still a hope. Yeah, of trying to overcome this situation. Yeah, sometimes it uh, it's that really challenging thing can be fun just because it's so ridiculously hard. It's like even incremental, tiny little improvements every time you play it. Are enough yeah, to you go And one of the uh, inspirations, of course, was that uh, Night of the Orbs in the Rollmaster campaign we played <laughs> yeah. that. That is like got you know that was is a setting for uh, Sword of the Skull Takers. So <laughs> demonic orbs are falling from the sky and you're crawling through the sewers trying to survive, <laughs> fighting yeah. these weird weird bugs that are electrocuting you and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was funny when I was looking into solo games earlier on. One of the big themes that came out, ones that people liked, tended to be half. It, they needed at least a bit of direction, a little bit of structure, but a little bit of what you're saying, a little bit of being able to actually create it yourself. Because there's, there seem to be quite a few um, games out there that are totally the other end of the fighting fantasy scale. So rather than being on rails and totally not much buy-in, they're actually just completely you. It's really just kind of directed writing, I guess, as opposed to a game. So there's a little tiny bit of structure. There's enough to... Um, oh, what was it? There was one called Hikikamori, which is a bit of a weird. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I've seen that. I read that online. That was who's is that by Jackson Tengu? Or yeah, I don't know the I don't know the name of the creator. No, but it's for anybody listening. It's um, supposedly about uh, a trend in Japan about people who basically become recluses, hermits in their own houses. So it's a bit of a depressing subject for a game, really. But it's about you writing in a similar way to uh, Skull Takers, I guess. You writing a journal of uh, this guy basically trying to stay out of anything interesting <laughs> which sounds a bit of a strange idea for a game as well and you the game finishes when he has uh, two or three interesting days in a row but supposedly the downside of that game is that it is just there's no structure really it is all just your imagination it is you just writing a story which in a way is a good thing i suppose but people are it seems that people crave that kind of a little bit more structure than just storyline basically well, there's certainly, certainly a game there, and uh, we haven't talked about the resolution system, which is pretty audacious. Okay. <laughs> for what, for uh, Hikikamori? No, for, um, for Skull for, Takers. Uh, skull oh, skull Takers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I've, I've, so I've got resolution system, and then again, you hit that same problem of on a solo player game, it's hard to come up with a mechanic that's meaningful. I think, which um, you know, I struggled with it. Is normally like you just either you roll a dice. If it's high, it's good. If it's low, it's bad. But that's I don't know. Feels not that satisfying. So I've just gone for something really simple, but where you know you do have a choice to make <laughs> at every point. And so it's basically just high or low. Let's play your cards right. Yeah, right. <laughs> 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 that is the resolution mechanic. Like. There's a card on the table, and if you're going to try and get that, you've got to say the next card be higher or lower. 
and then depending if, if you get it right, then yeah, your search is going well. You know, you're getting close. You're probably going to pick up the supplies, but then you have to guess the next card. And then you pull an eight and you think, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, yeah the, the skill a lot of the time there is uh, because you, you know, you get your normal resources when you're exploring uh, by getting what two successes, clawing high and low. Uh, but you then get to risk your major, you know, risk it all for a major success, which is how you get to win the game. Uh, yeah. So, you know. If you draw an eight, but you you know your two cards, you know your two major arcana, you or just need what one extra card, you draw an eight's the one that's halfway, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Seven, seven, right? They're both bad. <laughs> none, they're none, neither of them are good. Um, uh, and yeah, you draw that eight, and you think, oh no, do you want to risk it? Do you yeah? There's a tension there, and you have to make that judgment. Even you know, if it is a six, you know, do you want to make that take that risk or or go the safer option? Or do you keep it safe? That's safe. Yeah. That's yours. Do you want to gamble? <laughs> yeah. Gamble for the big risk. You're gambling with your your fictional life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forgot all about Brucey. What a win when you're making that sort of when you're making those sorts yeah. of decisions, uh, and it is you know, right in the game. Because you put yourself there. <laughs> it sounds like, Joe, it sounds like you, this is something that came up with the other games I was looking at as well, the fact that you end up with something quite nice and tangible at the end of it as well. So you've got a story. Do, like, Have you found people have actually something that turns out like a short story that's actually readable? Yeah, yeah. A lot of the, the journals that I've seen posted online are great. I always yeah. enjoy reading them. I don't know, I'm probably a bit biased, but yeah. I'm <laughs> Reading through them just as little short stories. Yeah. Little, I mean, if you just stumbled on one, you didn't know what it was. That might be quite interesting. Just reading about hearing this this demise of this person. Yeah. yeah slowly going insane, or meeting other people and then losing hope, and yeah. and then I just like the, like the way some of them that they just end. Yeah. As you like as they were talking about what they were going to do the next day, and like who they just met, and they were going to try and make a break for the next town, and then that's it. <laughs> Dead. Or there's a note of where, where, no, there's a note of where it's found or something like the yeah, journal yeah. is found next to a decapitated corpse. Yeah, totally. Because that's a huge advantage over digital games. Talking about the competition at the start, the fact that like you play. I mean, I've I've invested hundreds of hours in some games on the on console and computer, and you end up with nothing to show for it at the end of it, apart from you know you've had a good time, but that's it. But you play a game yeah. like this, and you actually create something that you can share with other folk. It turns into a. Yeah. It's not a. It's not a game at the end, but you're like you're still. It's not a multiplayer game. Sorry, is what I mean. But you're still sharing something. You're still actually getting a bit of feedback. You're. Yeah. There's yeah. Something goes out there. And that was one of the challenges I was trying to uh, trying to meet on the. Uh, solitaire RPG design competition because uh, they had a list of different challenges that you could meet and part of what I was trying to design was that it will play creates an artifact yeah. which you can kind of then use outside the game or like you say you can share to people or yeah. you know get some of them together and it's just uh, it's fun to read through yeah well there was there was a really interesting game I came across which I really fancy giving a go called uh, How to Host a Dungeon have you seen that one? Oh yeah, I've seen that one. I've read read through that one. It looks, yeah, uh, yeah it looks quite quite interesting. Yeah, Grant would probably like that because it's all about drawing maps. Yeah, it's just about drawing. You draw a <laughs> yeah. map, and then then you kind of tell the story of various migrations into the dungeon. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Basically, the like, principle the principle is if some anybody out there hasn't heard it, is you're 
it's yeah, it's it's almost like it's making a game out of creating a setting for a role playing game, and that's what you end up at the end of it. So you've got three yeah. phases. You create your dungeon. So this is kind of the the historic part of the dungeon. You say why the dungeon came about. So maybe it's dwarfs creating their you know their ancient hold or dark elves building pits to torture people in, and then you've got a second age, which is the monster age. So that means the uh, the dwarfs or the dark elves have died off or they've left to go elsewhere. Uh, orcs and goblins. And Skaven and dragons and things take over and they start just raiding uh, the upper world and in the last phase is uh, the age of villainy so uh, an arch villain of some sort takes over the dungeon and starts using it as his, his base of operations to menace the overworld and try and take over um, so by the end of it you play through um, this as a game creating history and all these factions are fighting against each other and there's a sort of back and forth tide of these things uh, like the dwarfs doing well and then the, the skaven doing well and all that kind of stuff so you've got this really detailed history of this dungeon yeah. that it's and, like, and a map it's like game, though. yeah yeah it sounds yeah i mean i don't know the exact mechanics but it's how do it's you, how do you win as a game i'm well, not sure if it is a, a game in a, a winning sense i was just mentioned as well it's by tony dowler and it's on planet 13 sure yeah yeah, I I'm not sure I'm not sure about a winning mechanic. I don't know about that at all. Um but maybe it is more that you're just creating something, yeah. You've got this thing at the end. I don't think it's intentionally made to create something to play with a multiplayer dungeon crawl type game, but it's just that you happen to end up with something that could be used for that. I think that might have been part of the, the intention in Was it? designs. That yeah, to so that you create a really in depth dungeon so when you play a character as a you know, strolling through it role-playing game you can give them so many things and hints you've got all that history to draw on so they yeah, might yeah. find something from the second age and be like oh what's this doing here we have no idea we thought it was just you know a skaven warren yeah yeah the elven artifacts we're finding <laughs> now or something <laughs> yeah yeah totally <laughs> i thought it sounded like great fun partly partly because of the creative uh aspects of it the fact that you can make lots of decisions in there and that yeah i noticed that you can get killed so the dungeon master can die so I guess there must be a certain amount of winningness if you get to the end. <laughs> but um, yeah, just the fact that you end up with something really tangible at the end, I think is quite cool. So what's your sort of avatar? What's your role in it? I don't quite understand if you can lose or die. Who, what, what's, what is, what's coming to an end? What's the, what's the peril? The impression, you might know more than me, Joe, but the impression I get of it is from my sort of brief reading is that you're acting almost like a, a god. So it's like it's like a kind of populist type game or something like that. So you're kind of influ- influencing what the races are doing. So you can kind of give the dwarfs a wee, uh, a wee prod in the positive direction or you can, you know, you can um, send more monsters in to try and uh, kill them off or stuff like that. You make decisions and you make dice rolls and stuff. So you have an effect on it, but it is a bit of a... Um, just influences maybe as opposed to actually playing particular characters yeah to be fair, I mean I've read it a while ago I can't really remember exactly how you, you how much influence you had because there was there was an element of that that it wasn't um, it's not really upfront with your character is it and it's it, sometimes it seems like it's more about telling the story of the dungeon than yeah telling your story but yeah you know there's nothing wrong with that and that's quite yeah, quite a nice way of doing it. Yeah, no, definitely. But like I said, there were things for when you're playing certain dungeon masterminds, isn't it, that you're trying to build up your territory or something like that. Yeah, yeah. There's a yeah, there is a there's a kind of intangible character, I think. You're the dungeon master, but you're kind of represented by the races at that time. Mm. So yeah. Yeah. it's a bit small world, I suppose, isn't it? 
Yeah, I actually, yeah, that's probably, yeah, good analogy. Yeah. But I quite fancy having a read. I think there's a free version out there, isn't there? Yeah, I think you can download the free version and then, the, you know, it's pretty cheap to get the official version. So okay. Everyone should download one. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but yeah. I think, I'm not sure whether that um, is part of this, but it, I I kept just coming up with the idea that when you're trying to create a one-player game, you're just going to, most of the time, by default, you'll end up with probably a whole bunch of tables, basically. So you've got a whole bunch of tables that you're going to roll on to create random events. Um, and I suppose the skill in making a good one is that these tables have to be a bit structured, possibly, so that they're not just completely and utterly random, so that it does create some kind of Maybe a little bit of predictability, but um, not enough that you can tell exactly what's going to happen. But it just creates a bit more of a, a narrative as opposed to just a whole bunch of things stuck together. Like, what's that What's that board game, the, um, the D&D board game, which you guys hate because it's just basically a whole bunch of random crazy shit happens one after the other? Yeah, Rafa Rashad so, Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> so well, if, if, if lots of random good stuff happened, then it might be okay. But you can't go in fit and healthy. And it's just it's just a downward slide. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm poisoned. Oh, I'm, I'm stunned. Poisoned. Oh, there's a couple <laughs> Oh, there's a flaming boulder falling on us. Oh, the walls are lava. Starting to drown. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, is the is the skill then actually making it so that that kind of thing can happen, but in a a more narratively based way so that it, they kind of tie together at least <laughs> like there's it's, there's some kind of decide what kind of game you want it to be or, I mean, there are some yeah. really ancient solo games there's one called like barbarian prince that was just like that it was like loads and loads of crazy tables and it was laid out all hexes and you roll randomly to determine where you turned up and who you met and whether you could move each turn or not and how many and uh, i don't know I think those kind of games have had their day. <laughs> I think the I think the trick to making a good table is probably just leaving it suitably vague to give you uh, just a bit of a pointer with mm. enough detail that that it, that is a sorry enough detail to give you a pointer without without being without just deciding it. I mean, I don't know if I've spoken in the podcast before about the. The crit tables that we're using for that um, game of uh, labyrinths and lycanthropes. Oh yeah. But we use yeah we use the role master crit tables. Mm, now yeah. I've only ever experienced those with with Matt telling those as as GM. Yeah. Uh, whenever we rolled a crit, he'd come up with these huge explanations of, of of what's going on, but he's rolling on a crit table, and they're they're actually brilliant. Oh yeah, like, the I'll never slag off the tables uh, ever again. Yeah. It's not the crit tables anyway. Uh, the different scene. You get hit by an e crit in the eye or something. Yeah, <laughs> but it gives you just enough description to let you know, you know, you know, your, your brain is, you know, you, you've you've taken a hit to the ankle, or an arrow, the arrow sticking out of it. What was it? Or it'll tell you your 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 eyeball explodes. But we'll yeah, tell you just yeah. enough detail, just enough yeah. that you can name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, it just they're all very detailed, but in a totally one or two word way, so that you yeah. have to actually put the kind of color around it, I guess. Yeah. So gives, have you got Have you got yeah. the book there, Cole? I probably do, but I have no idea where. Take me too long yeah. to find. I'm afraid. Yeah. But no, you're dead right there. There's there, and there was another game that um actually that brings to mind just that I found earlier on called uh, Traveler. 
which is apparently a really old one. Oh yeah, um, Traveller is like a massive game. Really? See, I'd never heard of it. I'm, I'm totally. Oh involved. yeah, the character, gen- the generation is like a game in itself. Character gen. Yeah. Really? Well, there's a lot. Possible to die in character creation. Oh, really? <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, I came across the fact that a lot of people play that solo. Apparently, there's a kind of system um, around merchant rules. Apparently, where you can basically start creating your own sci-fi setting. It's kind of like the how to host a dungeon almost, and that you create a, a futuristic. Well, it's basically creating a galaxy. But it. The point about that is that brought it to mind there was because it has a table, but. It's kind of a two a two tier one. So you roll uh where is it here? Uh sixteen. Sixteen? You don't get a D sixteen, do you? I'm not sure exactly how the dice rolling works here, but you've got sixteen options initially, and then you've got um D sixes after that. So you roll two dice, roll one to get the kind of the first level, which could be something like um Oh no, sorry, right, no uh I so say sell cargo or buy equipment or sell equipment or healing or event. Um and then beyond that, so in event, you've got uh, things like um, seek patron or expenses. So they're really, they're almost quite specific. So seek patron is quite a specific thing to do, but there's so much creativity you've got in around how you would do that, like how that's going to work. It offers quite specific things. So like um, you can choose, like you could roll a dice and it says to seek a patron or to uh, expenses cause a problem. Uh, so basically it's quite specific things almost but uh, there's tons of room in there to be creative around it so it's like you basically you create the setting around those little pointers or those little prods I guess so I just thought yeah it's really similar to what you were saying Grant but I I thought it sounded quite interesting anyway partly because it's a sci-fi setting and you don't see a lot of them oh there are plenty of them just we don't we 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 tend to use fantasy I think ourselves well, I maybe right. I, I, yeah, I just don't come across them very much. So, yeah. I don't know if you need tables for for solo games. I mean, a lot of them, I suppose, would rely on them. Mm-hmm. I just, felt, I just mentioned it because I felt like it's almost the default. It's kind of what you would imagine is maybe the easy way into a solo game. Well, I think that's one of the easy ways for putting in structure, like you were saying, for like, if people want to put structure in games. But I suppose a lot of games do go the other way and just make it a lot more kind of free form and flowing and. Uh, I'm thinking of um, a game called Beloved by Ben Lehman, which was one of the from the RPG uh, Solitaire Challenge, which is just kind of weird, and it's one that whether whether it's really a game or not is hard to say because it was kind of like um, yeah, you're trying to rescue your true love. It's, it's kind of like Super Mario Brothers, like you're trying to rescue your, your <laughs> true love from the clutches of this evil monster by jumping on turtles. Which is well, like that could be a way of doing it. Well, the monster is supposed to be in, un, uh, indestructible, undefeatable. Like there's no way to to beat it. And you you draw a picture of the monster, and then carry it around with you, and keep pl- thinking about it in your head, playing out the battle until you figure out a way to beat the monster, and then you rescue your beloved. Except she's not really your beloved. It's just someone who's very similar to her, but different in a couple of ways. And then you decide if you're going to stay with her or not, or whether you want to really find your beloved. And it just kind of keeps going like that, that until you decide to stay with one of these uh, girls that you've rescued. All right. <laughs> or, or you just keep going forever. Yeah. <laughs> playing against these monsters. So. <laughs> That's odd. <laughs> it's pretty weird. Yeah, a little bit. It's pretty weird. Yeah. And it's like, is it? Yeah. Is, is that really a game, or is that more of a thought experiment? Or. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. I don't know. It's, 
<laughs> well, I found, do you know, I found a few people talking about the fact that the best solo game is daydreaming. <laughs> you just sit there and think about things for half an hour. Imagine if this happened. Imagine if that happened. What would happen then? <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's the extreme, but it's yeah. not a game. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Although, just, well, uh, yeah, anyway, we can talk about the definition of a game another day, but yeah. <laughs> that's a good point, actually, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There's another. There's another topic. There's yeah. A topic. Yeah. Yeah. We probably should have done that already, shouldn't we? Yeah. Know. Probably. <laughs> we don't know what a game is. Yeah. <laughs> Episode what? one. What is a game? Actually, yeah. the definition of a game is. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I've been doing. A, I did a gamification course just recently for uh, for some of my teaching stuff, um, and it went into some of the science behind what makes a game and how do you define, uh, how do you differentiate games from just simple fun. Uh, it's actually quite a, some interesting stuff in there. Yeah, we could cover that later. Cover that in another, yeah, yeah, another yeah, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Any anything more to say about uh, solo games? Uh, oh, I will say uh, Space Hulk and Advanced Hero Quest both ah. had solo rules, rules for solo play. And um, I do remember many years ago playing uh, Space Hulk on my own, playing the solo missions. And that, again, that works quite well because the the gene stealers just keep spawning and you can just use fairly simple rules for how they attack and it's just about trying to yeah trying to survive with the marines probably probably a bit easier than playing against a human per human player but you know, still works mm-hmm. and still just as deadly if they get to you those gene yeah. stealers yeah um, well as a human you pretty much just run them straight at them anyway don't you <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean yeah. gene stealers are like like zombies uh like fast zombies Zombies were really good in close combat. <laughs> yeah, but you know that that's that's their thing is they'll well except sometimes they they'll either lurk or they'll charge you. Um, and you know if you're start if you're playing against someone who's beginning at Space Hulk, you'll give them the Gene Stealers because they've basically got two choices to make. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, and Advanced Hero Quest as well had its own. Um, solo play rules which I've played a few times in fact I think we sometimes use the solo play rules when I was playing with my friends so we could both have heroes yeah okay. you made a, into a collaborative game yeah I made into a collaborative game so instead of having one person running the monsters we were both running heroes but yeah the monsters fought by the solo play rules and yeah. again that, that worked okay it was probably, it was probably you lose a certain something but um, yeah and there's those simple kind of games you can just have a almost AI pattern for the monsters. I suppose, I mean, the, the design for a solo game could be very some could be exactly the same as for a for a collaborative game. A lot of, a lot of the time it is. You know, if if you're only playing if you and a friend are playing against the game, there's not much reason why you couldn't just play against the game yourself. Let's go for a break just now. When we come back we'll uh we'll do our outros and say goodbye. Uh, right, folks, uh, we come to another uh, the end of another episode of Dicing with Design. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, and we'd love you to get in contact with us, uh, there are many ways of, of doing so. We're on all the social media. Okay, you can just uh, Google us for that. Use our website and leave a message there. And on Twitter, we're at DWD Podcast to keep up with our news. Will that do us, guys? I'll do. Yeah. Dicemoodesign.com. Dicemoodesign.com. Design. <laughs>
Facebook.com. <laughs> oh, and give us some reviews. Cheers. I want some reviews on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, I'm always going to say that. <laughs> That'll help us out. Even if, it tells, even if you say we're shit. As long as somebody's talking about us, I don't care. No, 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 no. Emails to tell some shit. Yeah, yeah okay. Five star review on iTunes. <laughs> cool. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Yeah, bye.